Tonight's Old Testament reading is from the book of Genesis, chapters 12 and 17, and can be found on page 2 of the bulletin. Genesis 12, 1-3 Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 17, 1-7 When Abram was ninety-nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. My name is Andrew Russell, one of the pastors here. If you are visiting... It's a pleasure to be with you. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we come before you, O God, in the mighty name of Jesus. And Lord, we just sang that you were worthy to be praised. Lord, I pray that you, O God, would just speak to the hearts of your people. You are the worthy one. I am the unworthy one. And Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to speak your word to your people. I pray that it would not return void. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of this sermon is The Theology of the Family. So why does God care about families? That's the topic of the sermon today, and we're actually starting a sermon series. Today is the first day of a sermon series on the family of God. Uh, We uh, We're going to be talking more about this theme through our Vision Brunch, which is on Saturday, September the 21st, from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., and I would encourage you to come. Even if you're not a member, if you're just a visitor or regular attender and would like to see, okay, what is God going to do? Where are we headed this ministry year? So we're going to talk about the family of God. That's our theme for this ministry year. And we're going to focus on how we as a congregation live as a family, how do we serve as a family, and how do we share love as a family. So because you are my family, I'm going to give you two points. I usually do three, but I'm going to do two tonight. I got my stopwatch, so we're going to end on time. Amen? Amen. All right. So God first Here's my two points. First, God cares about the family because God is a family. And secondly, God cares about the family because the families, families are his design to bring salvation 
to the world. So point number one, God cares about the family because God is a family. And then secondly, God cares about the family because he uses them to bring salvation to the world. So we know that God has revealed himself as God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. And these three persons are one. They are co-equal, co-eternal, yet they are distinct persons acting in complete unity. As a father, God shows his unique relationship between he and Jesus Christ, the Son. God is not masculine or feminine. God is a spirit, and he has chosen to reveal his character as a father rather than a mother. However, there are many instances in Scripture where we see the feminine imagery uh, of, of God explained in the feminine imagery. Uh, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 18, God is described as giving birth. In Ruth chapter 2, God is described as a mother bird. And in Proverbs 8, God's character of wisdom is portrayed as a woman in the feminine form. Now, God does not downplay the, the worth of mothers. In fact, God celebrates mothers because it is only through a woman that anyone can be born. Women were the first evangelists after Jesus rose from the dead. Women throughout the Bible showed incredible faith and perseverance in the midst of struggles. Women of great skill and wealth like Phoebe supported and helped to fund the Apostle Paul's ministry. Jesus had an earthly mother, and his mother played an instrumental role in his growth and understanding and wisdom. And yet, when I've said all of those things, some of you might still cringe when you hear that God has revealed himself as a father. Some of you may cringe because you've had bad examples of fathers. You've had fathers who abandoned you. You've had fathers who were physically present but emotionally unavailable. You've had dads who were religious, but, but not really spiritual. They, they were religious, but it wasn't real. It wasn't authentic. You've had good dads who poured into you, but, does it, but, he, but he does that at his job for other people, and, and therefore he isn't home enough. He's always taking speaking engagements. He's always trying to please others when his family is at home thinking, if only my dad gave as much time to me, as he does making a name for himself. So uh, has anybody ever watched the show The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? That's one of my favorite shows. The highest rated episode uh, was this episode of Lou, Will Smith's dad, uh, who had basically abandoned him for 14 years. He was a truck driver and he was coming to visit Will and he was going to take Will on a summer trip. And so Will, he's getting his bags together, and then Lou, uh, you know, remember Uncle Phil, who Will is sleeping and, and staying with Uncle Phil, his family, in West Philadelphia, and Lou comes up to Uncle Phil and was like, you know what, Uncle Phil, I, I had something come up, and I have to postpone my trip, and in the midst of this conversation, Will comes up with his bags, he's ready to go with his dad, and Lou says, man, Will, I'm sorry, but... I have to postpone our trip. I'll be back. And then Will was, he didn't even say bye. He didn't even say bye, dad, or bye, father. He was like, well, bye, Lou. 
And in this scene, I'm going to give you a, a, a script here, read a script of the scene that followed when Lou left and Will was talking with Uncle Phil. Uncle Phil says this, Will, it's all right to be angry. And Will said, hey, why should I be mad? At least he said goodbye this time. I wish I hadn't wasted my money buying this present. And the present that he bought was an African uh, uh, image, a wooden sculpture of a father with his son sitting in his lap. And Uncle Phil said, I'm sorry if if there is something that I could. And and Will interrupts him and he says, you know what? You ain't got to do nothing, Uncle Phil. It ain't like I'm still five years old. Ain't like I'll be sitting up every night asking my mom, when's daddy coming home? Who needs him? He wasn't there to teach me how to shoot my first basket, but I learned and got pretty good at it too. Uncle Phil said, yeah, you did. And Will says, forget him. I don't need him then and I don't need him now. You know what, Uncle Phil? I'm going to get through college without him. I'll get a great job without him. I'll marry a beautiful woman and have a bunch of kids and be a better father than he ever was. I don't need him for that because there ain't a thing he could ever teach me about how to love my kids. And then Will, he pauses and he has tears in his eyes. And he says this last phrase to end the scene. He looks at Uncle Phil and he says, how come he don't want me, man? How come he don't want me? The psalmist said in Psalm 27, 10, for my, for my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. God is a good father. He will not abandon his children. I asked my daughter uh, in preparation for this sermon, I said, how does me, your father, help you relate to God the Heavenly Father, and my daughter says this. She says, because my dad has lots of kids, I have five. She said, because my dad has lots of kids, I know that God likes to have kids too. <laughs> so, <laughs> amen. So what does the word family mean to you? For me, family is everything. You know, I, uh, when I was 11 years old, My family uh, moved from Nassau, Bahamas to the United States in 1994, and we we moved because uh, my parents felt called to do full-time ministry. Uh, My dad heard a preacher in Orlando, Florida, and he said, where did you go to seminary? And he said, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And he and my mother were like, that's where we're going. And so we moved to Orlando, Florida in 1994, and I I was devastated. I was leaving grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins. My mother has 11 sisters. My dad has 14 brothers and sisters. I have a huge family in the Bahamas. And I remember my dad always telling us the story of how God called Abraham to leave country, to leave uh, possessions, to leave friends and family for the call of God on his life. And so I knew from a a young age that following God was costly. And so as a kid, all I had was my family. My family was my everything. It was my source of identity, my support system, and it gave me a sense of my potential. Uh, A gentleman named D.J. Svoboda, he was diagnosed at the age of three with autism spectrum disorder, 
with a psychomotor retardation, which included speech delays and issues with his fine motor skills. He even found it difficult to hold a pencil. Today, DJ is a, a dynamic speaker and a, an, an author. He has written three books, and, and he responded to the question, what does the word family mean to you? And this is what he said, and I honestly, I felt like this was the most beautiful description of what a family is, and this is what he said. He said, the word family means a lot to me. No one ever gets left behind. It means showing great support for your loved ones who have big dreams and to help encourage them to dream big and to never quit or give up be an option. It means to help each other to believe in themselves and to never be doubtful or negative about yourself. It means working as a great team to help each other and to never have any limits to do great and amazing and awesome things. Families always do their best to be very honest with one another in very polite and in very kind ways. And I I love what DJ said. He said, no one ever gets left behind. Families help each other to dream big and to never quit. Families are a great team that doesn't limit one another. DJ said, families never have any limits to great and amazing and awesome things. Who wants to live in a family like this? I know I do. A family that that loves you unconditionally. A family that loves you and supports your biggest dreams. A family that never puts any limits on you and encourages you to never give up. This, my brothers and sisters, is the family of God. In the family of God, no one gets left behind. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said, if a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is the, not the will of my Father who is in heaven that none of these little ones should perish. No one ever gets left behind in the family of God. In the family of God, we are our full selves without shame. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, and all things are becoming new. In the family of God, we have the freedom to dream as big as the universe. Paul says in Ephesians 3, Now to him who is Jesus Christ, who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask, think, or imagine according to the power at work within us. In the family of God, we are loved unconditionally despite our flaws. Roman 8 says nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's in Jesus Christ. So what does the word family mean to you? And here's my second point. God cares about the family because families are his design to bring salvation to the world. If a, civiliz- if a civilization is going to last, then its citizens must think of themselves corporately rather than individually. In our current era, we think of ourselves as individuals with complete autonomy. We're accountable to no one. We decide our own moralities. We only care for another person if it benefits us. We promote well-being as long as it doesn't infringe on our own personal freedoms. 
We have lost the sense of family in the United States of America. Families are, are, community, are communities of service where parents sacrifice for their children, wives for their husbands, uh, husbands for their wives, and then parents for their kids and kids for the whole family. You have to share everything in a family. You have to share food, clothes, toys, food. Because in the Russell house, man, we have to share a lot of food. And it gets pretty uh, violent sometimes <laughs> when, when food is, is scarce. So when we and my wife knew that we were pregnant with our fifth child, I asked my daughter, who was the only girl at the time I have at the time, I had three boys and one girl. And I asked Naomi, and I said, Naomi, how does it feel to be a sister soon? And she responded, I don't know, but will I have to share my toys? And I said, no, she'll be a little baby, and, and she won't be able to play with your toys. And then my daughter says, good, I'm ready to be a, good, a big sister. <laughs> The family is a part of God's design for saving the world. This is difficult to hear with our modern sensibilities of individuality and self-perseverance. God revealed himself to Abraham and he made a covenant with him. Abraham was the first time when God revealed himself to Abraham. He was 75 years old. Abraham was not in his prime. He had nothing to offer God. God said, through Abraham, all the families of the world will be blessed. And Sarah, his wife, was barren. And God said that they would have generations of children that would come after them. God said, Abraham, look at the stars. And if you could count the number of stars, that's how big your family is going to be. Yet Sarah was barren. Now, when God makes a covenant with his people, they are barren too. They don't see how God's promises can be fulfilled. It's impossible for a 90-year-old woman to have a baby, but God dwells in the realm of impossibilities. And you might feel barren before God tonight. You feel like you have nothing to give. Your barrenness does not qualify you from God making a covenant with you. In fact, your barrenness qualifies you because when you are weak, that's when he's strong. When you are powerless to deliver yourself, God is mighty to save. When you feel like I've been struggling with the same issue for years and even decades, God says that your struggle is the canvas upon which he will paint his greatest masterpiece. And he can use your broken family to do great things. Not because your family is entitled, but because God is gracious and he is merciful. God is gracious and merciful. The Bible says that he is slow to anger and he abounds in steadfast love. I don't know about you, but I have to remind myself of that every day, that God is slow to anger and he abounds in steadfast love. God's design was to use families to bring salvation. And blessing to the world. And if you look at Matthew chapter 1, it gives the genealogy of Jesus, but it starts with Abraham. Abraham's seed would one day be the Messiah of the world, and so families are very important to God. 
God reveals himself through covenants. And covenants are uh, these agreements or contracts between two or more parties. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, one of my professors in seminaries, defines covenants as the sovereign activity of God. God says, I am this, therefore you will do this. God changed Abraham's name to Abram in Genesis uh, 17, and he said that God would make Abraham into a great nation, and kings would come for him. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and my offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offsprings after you. This promise included land, but interestingly enough, this promise also included circumcision. Every male was to be circumcised, and circumcision was a sign of the covenant. It was a sign that you were in the covenant of God, that you were Abraham's seed. And God used uh, the, the, the sign of circumcision as proof that he would keep his promise to be their God, not only for Abraham, but for his children and his children's children. Baptism is also a sign of the covenant between God and his people. And if you've been here long enough, you know that we baptize babies. We baptize adults too, but we baptize babies. And this was different than a lot of denominations. Baptism was instituted by Lord Jesus Christ. It is a seal of the covenant of grace, signifying our union with Christ and our adoption into the family of God. The water represents the blood of Christ, the cleansing of God's blood, and the sanctification of God's Holy Spirit. And this promise is made to believers and their children. Baptism is a sign and a seal of God's covenant promises, and and Scripture regards children as partakers of this covenant. Now, baptism doesn't save you. But baptism uh, does, uh, when we baptize our kids, we, we, we show them that it points to Christ and we pray that they take a hold of the promises that are in Christ Jesus so that they are in the community of faith. Within God's design of the family, the gospel is preached and seen and lived out. And after the parents have taken their vows, the congregation has to take their vows. And I'm sure you've heard this question Every time Glenn or Mike has baptized one of your babies. And this is the question. Do you, as a congregation, undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? Now, you might not be the child's biological parents, but you still have a responsibility if you are a member of Grace Downtown to assist the parents as spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers brothers and sisters, in helping the parents nurture their child in the Lord. You have the awesome privilege of being in a family that takes care of one another, that speaks the truth in love, and above all is committed to God and each other. It's this commitment that speaks of the design of families to bring salvation to the world. Christ is committed to saving his children And he gave his life to show his unconditional nature of the covenant of grace. Instead of us dying when we couldn't hold up our end of the covenant, Christ died. He sacrificed his son. God sacrificed his son so that we could experience the blessing of being in a committed relationship, a committed covenant relationship with God. 
It's because of Jesus Christ that we can become children of God because, yes, God likes kids. Now, Lauren Hill, one of my favorite artists, she came out with a song recently. It was her and Pusha T. And I'll sing the chorus for you and show how it relates to the family. And she, say, she sings this. She says, when love is gone, you could hold on to anything. Some do wrong just to feel anything. But when the void is filled, you can stand up to anything. When love is real, you can do anything. Lauren Hill says, when love is gone, you can hold on to anything. When you're not in a family, when you don't experience the love and the support of a family, you try to hold on to anything, anything that's going to show you acceptance, anything that will show you love. In her second line, some do wrong just to feel anything. Some of us do things that we know that will have grave consequences because we just want to feel something. We're tired of being numb and tired of being depressed and tired of being worried and tired of being anxious and tired of feeling lost. We just want to feel something. In the next line, she says, but when the void is filled, you can stand up to anything. When God comes in and he initiates a covenant with his people and he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. When this spiritual void in your life is filled, this void of love, this this void of acceptance, this void of family, when the void is filled, you can stand up to anything. That's why Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died because he knew that his fathers loved him so well, that his father's love was so real that he could stand up to anything. He knew that his father's love was authentic. It wasn't fake. And it gave him the strength because he knew that his father loved him. Because there's no fear in love. There's only boldness in love. When you're in love, you don't tiptoe. You come out boldly, you hug boldly, you love boldly. And Jesus, and when God says, when you are my children and you come into the throne room of grace, when you come to pray, you should come boldly. Because in the throne room of grace, you can call me daddy. And that's the love that God gives and brings into the family. John 14, chapter 23, Jesus says, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. So Jesus is saying, when, you've, when you're a follower of Jesus Christ, when you've committed yourself to Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit will make a home inside of you. And it's the most famous work that C.S. Lewis wrote. You know, this is a Presbyterian sermon, so I got to quote C.S. Lewis, Amen. In his book, Mayor Christianity, C.S. Lewis said, this is such a beautiful picture of what God is doing inside the lives of his children. C.S. Lewis says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps 
you can understand what he's doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts uh, abominably and, and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here and putting an extra floor there and running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. As I close, God wants to build you into a palace. And it starts with being in his family. It starts with surrendering your idea of who you should be and letting God define you. It starts with being honest with yourself and the void that you feel and ask God to bring you into his loving family. It starts with you seeing yourself as an individual that's a part of a grand story. The story of God blessing families through Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob. A story that allows you to see yourself as you were meant to be seen, a city not forsaken, a people who has shown, God has shown mercy, children in the family of God, because yes, God likes a bunch of kids. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O God, that you have used families as a the vehicle to bring salvation. Lord, some of us come from broken families. Some of us are in currently broken families. Some of us have that void that needs to be filled. We've had bad examples of mothers and fathers. We've had bad examples of families that's supposed to never leave anyone behind, and yet we feel abandoned. And so, Lord, I pray that you, O God, that through your love, that you would call out your children, And that you would let them see that through Christ they can come.